Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Three distinguished Yale historians of post-Civil War America, David Blight, Glenda Gilmore, and Jonathan Holloway, discuss the historic, social, and political significance of the election of President Barack Obama. Hi, my name is Jonathan Holloway. I'm a professor of African American Studies, History and American Studies, and also the Master of Calhoun College. I'm here with two of my wonderful colleagues, David Blight and Glenda Gilmore, who will introduce themselves in a few minutes. But I wanted to start off this conversation with uh, a short story of my experience during this most recent election. I was at home with my wife, and the kids were asleep, and I received a text message, this new generation of communication, received a text message at 11.34 precisely from one of my seniors saying that he was with a dozen other Hoonies, I'm the master of Calhoun College, he was with a dozen other Hoonies, and they wanted to celebrate with me. Could they come over? My wife and I looked at each other, thought, why the heck not? So we went around the house, looked for some champagne, and about five minutes later, a dozen red-faced Yale seniors come running to our door. They actually lived off campus. I didn't know that at the time. They came running in between the McCain speech and the Obama speech, wanting to make sure they actually bore witness to history. Some of you may have heard about the, the party, the impromptu party that happened on old campus about 1230 after Obama finished, where close to 1,000 students gathered in a circle, sang the national anthem, and reveled in this moment in which they played partner to history. What I found amazing about this moment is that these were students who had never voted in a presidential election, and there was a sense of that they really were partner to something larger than themselves. I had lunch the next day with one of my students, and I was telling her that as a professor of history, I simply still couldn't fathom that this moment had transpired, that we had come to a place somehow in our country where you could find a Barack Obama um, being elected. And her response I found most fascinating as a historian. She was telling me that, well, Master Holloway, the students of my generation, the voters of my generation, don't think like that anymore. We don't think in racial terms. Um, I was almost at a loss for words because so much of my work and my, the world I study is about how this country is defined by thinking in racial terms. But um, maybe we're at some watershed. It's too early to tell, of course, but uh, thankfully we have a couple of other scholars here who, like me, spend a lot of time thinking about race and politics and what it means to be American. And uh, I want to just hand the microphone over quickly to uh, my colleague David Blight, um, in light of some recent comments Thomas Friedman made about this election marking the end of the Civil War. David? Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I, I uh, had also similar experiences of a lesser scale. Uh, the morning after the election, the day after the election, I had students coming into my office, students I would meet on the street, some of whom I only marginally know. Everyone wanted to hug. Uh, apparently some of them had had my course. I didn't even know it. Uh, th there was this deep need, it, it seems, to connect around this event. And, um, and just to stay with that theme that you so eloquently described, it, it does show us, certainly, for their generation, that is the undergraduate's generation, but for the rest of us too, frankly, we've just seen, I think, that there is a deep hunger for democracy, for civic life, for political connection, to actually believe in government. Uh, to believe in a political process, a system. And I think that kind of affirmation is partly what we're experiencing. And then, of course, there is this um, stunning, to some still unbelievable idea that a 
black person could be elected president. Now, Tom Friedman's idea that he expressed the morning after the election, uh, a great topic sentence. Uh, on November 4, in 2008, the American Civil War was over, is on one level uh, uh, stunning, provocative, interesting, but it's also silly in in a in historical sense. We've declared our race problem over a thousand times. We've declared an end of an American innocence uh, a thousand times. Um, we, we've declared ends in our history to all kinds of problems. And there, there is no particular end that we can point to here yet. We can certainly point to beginnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be beginnings of, uh, of a new kind of political realignment. There may be beginnings to new models of leadership. Um, there may be um, beginnings to even new definitions of what civic life even means because of the numbers of young people uh, who've come into this. The one end that I would suggest we talk about, it's, it's not an end, but uh, it's certainly a transition, is that we are witnessing, uh, it seems to me, a decline, if not a political bankruptcy of one of our political parties. The Republican Party is in deep trouble and I think we can offer some help or explanations uh, as to perhaps how that might have come about. But uh, I share your uh, astonishment in a sense that so many young people say they live in a post-racial America, they don't think about these things. The only way I could process this entire campaign, and every time I've been called by a reporter or, or, or asked to write something or in talking to students, as a historian, I can only see this through a long view. And what I was thinking election night and in the days before, and, and, and even watching Obama speak that night where I could barely stop crying, is that I could only remember the thousands who died during Reconstruction to try to vote, the 3,200 African Americans murdered in lynchings. Those were recorded lynchings between 1910, 1890, and 1920, the untold uh, millions, and Glenda can comment better on this, denied all kinds of life aspirations through the many, many decades of Jim Crow. It is only through that process that I could in any way feel the weight of this moment. And in some ways, I actually hope Obama himself, who is such a student of history, is not thinking about that too much because, frankly, it could become such a burden right. to, to, to think what he carries now that he could become almost paralyzed to act. So maybe the rest of us can keep thinking about that and teaching about that while he doesn't <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Glenda, do you want to jump in here? And sure, that would be great. I'm Glenda Gilmore. I'm Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor of History, and I'm chair this year of the African American Studies Department at Yale. I'm also incidentally this year teaching right at this moment the New Deal. And so the students in my class feel as if they're eyewitnesses to another Great Depression. And I'm sure that the particular set of circumstances that have come together, we have two threads that we're talking about here. One is a thread of are we in a post-racial society? What does it mean that we've elected a black president? And the other is a, a sort of symbol of defeat of greed and political uh, malice, a sort of collapse of tactics that have worked very well for about, you know, 130 years. Uh, So I think it's just 
for someone who's either older than 30 or a historian, I think it's too soon to call what's going to happen in the future. It looks like 67, 68% of people under 30 voted for Obama. It looks like a similar percentage of first-time voters voted for Obama. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. It's too early to tell whether it's the production of this sort of idea that it's post-racial and the fact that for once everybody, every voter is experiencing history because we're on the brink of what looks to be at least a great recession, if not a big depression. But I wanted to follow up just one second on what David said about the end of the Civil War, et cetera. I I always find these comments um, amazing because they tend to ignore the voter repression that came from 1890 till at least 1920 of African Americans in the South, which perfected some of the methods that we saw in this campaign today. Um, the young woman, I think her name was Ashley Todd, who carved the backwards B on her cheek. Uh, that's a very common tactic from the turn of the century. I wrote about it then in voter repression when they said that if white men voted for a bi in a biracial coalition, their white women would be in danger. It worked very effectively when um, Harold Ford was running and they mm. had a white mm. woman in an ad say, call me Harold, to imply that um, if you voted for Harold Ford that white women would be lost to white men, but it didn't work in this election. And I think that it'll be sort of a full employment act for historians for the next hundred <laughs> years trying to figure out why it didn't work. One reason, though, is these are younger voters who have, not, who have actually grown up in a diverse society and can't be so easily fooled. That, well... I, you you may be right in that regard. I'm still trying to figure out the generational difference here. I mean, this is the first generation of voters for a president that I'm old enough to be their parent, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Boy, it makes sense to me. Um, the um, Welcome to the problem. <laughs> but, Don't trust anyone over 30. Uh, it is just fascinating to me that this is a generation that grew up with multicultural diversity training in the training um, curriculum in the classroom, mm. uh, a, a multicultural curriculum that many of us have in spirit thought was great, but have been kind of queasy about the way it was thought about or applied and talking about tolerance rather than something else. Um, but there's a way in which I think that they are, they've been coded differently. <laughs> and again, as someone who's 20 years older than them, it's hard for me to exactly figure it out. You mentioned, Glinda, that you, you're talking about the New Deal in your class right now. I've had, I teach the uh, post-emancipation African-American history survey every spring semester, and I've had several students come up to me since the election and wondering, well, how does this change your class? <laughs> and I, it was actually, it, it caught me off guard at first. I think it's kind of silly that it did, but it, it did catch me off guard. It certainly changes the end of my class. Um, but last year, uh, this or excuse me, this past January, when I started the course, Obama was running in the in the um, primary against Hillary Clinton. Many of us still presumed that Clinton was going to be the the nominee, and then Obama became a movement uh, over the next several months. And I was watching this transpire in my course. I told the students at the beginning of the course I would not be talking about the election until the end of the course because this is a class of history. But I guarantee them that there would be themes 
every week in the election, in the primary debate, uh, primary battles, there would be themes that linked what happened in January 31st, 2008, to discussions of what's happening in, in Reconstruction America. I mean, these narratives of what um, that Glenn has already alluded to in terms of white womanhood, the threat of the black male, these are long, long narratives. And I simply can't believe that those narratives are going to disappear. Maybe, 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 I doubt it, but maybe they've altered somehow. But let's just, let's, let's see what happens once maybe the economy gets better, or maybe when Middle East strife becomes less confusing. And then let's see that role of, of I think, the racial specter can come up much more easily then mm-hmm. when we're all not hurting so much. Well, history is never over. I mean, the, the, the first <laughs> lesson we can That's teach right. all of our students is that history never has ends. It has, it has great turning points. It has pivots. This is a pivot. I mean, this, this is, you've got to put this in a, in a top half dozen pivots mm-hmm. in our political history, at, at least maybe top three. Uh, I had a graduate student walk into my office the morning after the Iowa primary, Obama's mm-hmm. victory, which was stunning. Mm-hmm. We didn't expect him to win. Mm-hmm. A very smart graduate student, who will go unnamed here because we all know him. He walked in the next day. He works in our field. And he said, are we necessary anymore? David, <laughs> do, do I need, do I, should I, you know, is it worth finishing my work and so on? And he was serious, half serious. And, of course, I said, you bet we are. You know, this is only going to be more important to keep explaining. But, you know, to to your your important question, Jonathan, about our undergraduate population now and what they think and believe and so on, many of them, and we're talking not all of them here, but many of them have at least been raised, is that fair to say, educated to the extent they understand history in a kind of anti-racist tradition. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it, it's it's just it's just impossible to be to be acceptably racist now, and we've seen this all over our political culture. All kinds of people who, deep down, if you probe for their deepest beliefs, you might not find it very pretty. But I think, in part, what we did have here in this election is the first opportunity ever on a national scale to cast an anti-racist. Racist, and I was I was as as afraid of the so-called Bradley effect as anybody, and yes. worried about it. But I saw a statistic just recently that, if it's correct, that 17 percent of Obama's vote came from people who had voted earlier for George W. Bush. Now, that doesn't mean they're all racist and now they're converted to something, but that means that most of those are white people who voted mm-hmm. for Bush. They may may have been Republicans. Uh, they may have just been moderate independents and so forth. But our students have now for, for quite a long period of time grown up in this kind of anti-racist tradition. And suddenly here was, a possib- here was a moment to actually express yourself in that in a way they'd never been quite given the opportunity. I don't for one believe we live in anything resembling what people are calling a post-racial America. Um, I mean, and, and, and that's because, again, um, History never ends. I mean, we, we fall back the next morning after Obama's election to the realities of inequality, the realities of incarceration, the realities of brutal inequalities in education, and so on and so forth. And none of that changes overnight. And frankly, what we should all be watching, and you two know this well as I do, is just how much gets accomplished and not accomplished, say, in one 
simple four-year term, mm -hmm. and Obama is now about to be blamed for what is not accomplished as well as given credit for what is accomplished, and, and, and that is going to be about race. So, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's another thing for us to chart. I think that's right. I think we'll see uh, explanations, quote-unquote, for his errors being tied to sort of coded racial formulations. But I want to go back to this education thing just one minute. I'm a white woman who grew up in Guilford County in North Carolina <laughs> and grew up during segregation. I was taught educated to be a racist by my family and by my schools. My high school didn't integrate until I was a senior in high school. And uh, so just as we have taught a kind of anti-racism, I was taught racism. That's one reason that white Southerners were so opposed to Brown v. Board of Education. Mm -hmm. They asked outright and forthrightly, well, how can we teach our children mm -hmm. what their place is. Their place is on top. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we do that if we have integrated schools? Well, how indeed? But it's really important to me um, that Sarah Palin went to the county in which I was born, Guilford County, and lived <laughs> my life, and said, now here we have real Americans <laughs> using those racist code words. And she talked to those real Americans, and they voted, they went, um, 18% for Obama over McCain. I'm very proud of them. Mm. Mm. Congratulations <laughs> to you, to Guilford County and the North Carolina. Well, indeed, for me, uh, as a historian of the Civil War era, the fact that Obama won what, what I like to call three ex-Confederate states, I mean, um, Florida, North Carolina, and Missouri wasn't a Confederate state, but that's still outstanding, right? They haven't even named I mean, they're not ex-Confederate states anymore, obviously, uh, with Sunbelt migration and the, the tremendous changes that have happened in the South. Uh, the South is a new, the South's a new place every day in every way and always has been. Um, but that, in some ways, is the most extraordinary accomplishment of this election for the Democrats. That and the, the three new Western states. That, and now you have, if you like, beachheads politically for the Democratic Party on the national level in places they just, well, they haven't existed since the old, old Democratic Party of the early 20th century. I think it's terrifically important, North Carolina, Virginia, and Colorado, particularly those three states. Mm -hmm. And we have to mention the fact that those three states have Hispanic populations. Large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And North Carolina has an incredibly growing, Guilford County has a growing Hispanic population. So as we're talking about post-racialism, we're also talking about a kind of racialist coalition among uh, liberal whites, African Americans, and Hispanic voters that I think Republicans had hoped would not happen. Oh, they're, I think they're counting on it not happening. Right, right. Yeah, the, you know, it's, it's really important that you brought this up uh, in terms of the, the rising uh, Latino vote being articulated in interesting ways all across, all across the country. Mm -hmm. um, the, if you remember, I'm sure you do, gosh, maybe eight years ago, New York Times ran a whole series on race in America. Oh, yeah, yeah. Multi-part series. Yeah, multi-part. Yeah. Ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize. I think it seemed like a blatant pitch for it. Um, and I was <laughs> struck by the fact, having just moved to New Haven from spending a fair amount of many years in California, mm -hmm. 
of how wrong the story was in mm. that of one of, if there were six stories, I don't remember how many there were, mm. there was one and it was in North Carolina and it was, a, it was, that was the brilliant one that talked about, um, they weren't talking about racial coalitions, but it was these migrant um, Mexicans working in a, a, um, a hog processing plant right. or something like and that next, n- next to convict, uh, former convicts and next, and there was this whole racial hierarchy um, certainly wasn't about coalitions, as I remember the article, <laughs> but it was about the rising complications, if you will, if you will um, with this, um, and I use this term ironically, this third new force coming in. Uh, so, I mean, California's already gone through this a bit as far as trying to wrestle with what it means to be um, a non-majority state. If, you know, part state have already gone that way and other parts will be there soon. But like you said, it's the Jinkalinda. It's happening in places like North Carolina. It's happening along the the southeast, and um, and it's happening in areas in the the Mid Atlantic certainly as well. That there's a fundamental realignment, and I wonder how much of that's going to be talked about yeah. in the next oh, X number point. of years. I mean, I just wonder. I mean, with in a in a strange way, and something that we might want to think about. With Obama being elected, even though he explicitly, and much to many African Americans' frustration, didn't want to be seen as the black candidate, um, it'll be curious to see how much there's a downward pressure now in talking about other racial or ethnic groups Mm. in any sort of way beyond Mm. them being a problem or this, you know, this new frontier that, you know, Mm. a new coalition of America, black and white, in a weird way, has to tamp down on. Well, America loves a success story, and what can happen from this is, okay, we've solved all our racial problems. We have a black president. That's right. Well, and, and, and one of the cautions we can continue to remind ourselves about is that this economic collapse, uh, plus the, I, th- I still think, deep concern across our society about our reputation abroad, um, it did put everybody in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And if prosperity comes back, the kinds of identity conflicts, the kinds of ethnic and racial, in, you know, intra-racial conflicts we've seen in, in recent history may indeed come back, especially in local politics. It's, it's hard. It, it, if this is a real new coalition, it remains to be seen. I hope it is. Yes. It remains to be seen. But, but this economic collapse did indeed put everybody in the same boat, and Obama could clearly appeal to that. At the same time, people could go into that voting poll and for the first time vote for a new kind of American. I guess what worries me about that analysis, which I completely agree with, is, and, and what still remains so unresolved for me, is that in past times of economic crisis, race has been a divider. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have always, politicians have always used, uh, during the populist period, that's when they finally disfranchised African Americans. Um, it's it's always a kind of you need to vote your racial interests rather than your class interests, mm-hmm. and in this case, it didn't work, and the working class went mm-hmm. uh, heavily for Obama. One thing I might suggest is, uh, unfortunately, it might be the incompetency of the Republican campaign. <laughs> yes. I, I think that's, again, a caution we need to keep reminding, and I think you're dead right, is that this was an extraordinarily talented campaign run by Obama and his people, but the space for this to happen was carved, frankly, and let's be frank, by a Republican Party that has become the White American Party, 
it has it has been growing into that for a very long time. They made appeals during the first and second Bush administrations to African Americans that that totally backfired. All of this attempt to appeal to black churches, to appeal to a black kind of conservatism, it offended people. It drove people away. Um, they they lost Hispanic, in spite of Bush's own mm-hmm. uh, fairly progressive approaches to immigration. They that still didn't draw people to this particular Republican Party. Um, and so we, we should be cautious because uh, down the road with other kinds of candidates uh, under different circumstances, uh, I'm not convinced that the racial buttons that have been pushed so many times before won't yet work again, uh, particularly in certain parts of the United States. Also, we haven't even mentioned the, the, the foreign implications of this. and. Mm. Um, and we, we've all seen the evidence all over the world uh, of how the world has been voting for Obama. And, and I think this is also something we can only begin to speculate about. But what a hunger there seems to be in the world to do what? Uh, believe in America, to, to, to try to see us as something besides uh, uh, the nation that has an army and no other foreign policy, um, a place that might again be seen at least in part through its Fulbright professors and students we send abroad <laughs> and our Peace Corps people instead of uh, this muscular foreign policy. It, it tells us something, at least, about this old, old idea that America is an idea. And most of the world seems to know that. And in yes. our own political yes. culture, we may have forgotten it. Well, I mean, the, I mean America's been very good at exporting the idea of America, mm. not the reality. So maybe people are thinking, well, mm. maybe this idea is finally, we're actually <laughs> seeing it in practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't want to get away from the foreign policy issue, but it does raise an issue with, with my students, our students. Um, what allows them to think post-racially is because so many of them are also innocent of history. Yeah. I mean, oh, their yeah. minds are blown in my class, and I'm sure yeah. it happens in oh, yours. Yeah. When I start telling them stories... We hate to admit there's a value to the innocence of history, don't we? Yeah, there's a real value. There's a real value. Um, uh, Only in the short run. (laughs) But they are floored to hear about the behaviors of politicians, regardless of political party, across time and space. They're floored to hear about the mundane actions of extraordinary people, I mean, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Um, and they're floored to really be faced with the fact that the people who changed the world 40 years ago were their age. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's, it's um, you know, they get, America, I think Glenda said earlier, oh, you have a great phrase, America loves, I'm forgetting Success it. Story. Success story. <laughs> they also love absolution. Yes. And, redemption, uh, redemption. <laughs> and that's an American right. right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And isn't that somewhere in the Bill of Rights? Do we have <laughs> a right so. to be redeemed from anything we I think do? It's the eleventh one. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, Republicans and Democrats, a national leadership, have been great at talking about how we all overcame ourselves. I oh, guess yeah, yeah. you know, when, with Martin Luther King, how we all are better. We all know. freed the slaves in America. Exactly. Everybody voted for emancipation. In case you hadn't noticed. And I wonder. And everybody <laughs> voted for the '64 <laughs> Civil Rights Act. And very soon, noticed. everybody's going to vote for Obama. I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> nobody voted for Nixon, and nobody will have voted for McCain. <laughs> I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things that <clears throat> happens when we think that the civil rights movement was over and things were solved and it was successful 
is that we then tend to individualize problems that have continued that were not resolved, that are sort of not just legacies of the civil rights movement, but continuing themes that were never addressed. And I think that this election and this political moment contribute, uh, coming together these two channels of of a African-American president and a great economic stress, Give us a chance to push things forward. That's what Rahm Emanuel said when he was saying, well, you know, it's great to take advantage of a crisis. You have so many opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's why my students are so interested in all those boring New Deal agencies for the first time. (laughs) I mean, they're really psyched about the Glass-Steagall Act. So (laughs) I think that we have a kind of confluence of events that can help the nation think hard about continuing problems that we've had, like uh, high incarceration rates, like continuing urban poverty, like problems in educational availability. Um, We just are able now to say, well, what really matters in this society? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not structuring derivatives to sell off poor people's mortgages. Maybe it's actually thinking about elementary education. Well, and, and, and while you're on the New Deal, are we not experiencing a fascinating uh, awareness, discussion uh, about government? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this election may, again, we need, we need to take time to assess this, but this election may or may not be, be showing us again that in our broad political culture, there is also a hunger to believe in government. Because where have we been, let's be honest, since at least the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, with some changes during the Clinton years, but in a, in a political culture that says we're all individuals. The government, mm-hmm. the era of big government is over, right. said Bill Clinton. Right. And, and is it? No, it isn't. And, and let's face it, the big government began with Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican. And one of the reasons, frankly, that the current Republican Party has lost its footing, has lost its language, and every time they even try to use that phrase, party of Lincoln, we now at least have a large number of Americans who just smile because they may have actually learned that big government was invented by the first Republicans. And so the party of Lincoln, uh, it seems to me, has been reversed, and there are a lot of people who know it. So that's the thing to follow in the coming years. I mean, we're bailing out everybody. Uh, We're bailing out General (laughs) Motors. I mean, I grew up in a General Motors family. General Motors was the largest corporation on planet Earth. Every blood relative I have worked for General Motors, and the idea that GM would be bailed out by the government. Uh, is is almost as fundamental a pivotal turning point as Obama's election right. to me. That's so right. we're undergoing this this whole this old old American debate again. What's the what do governments owe their people? What do people owe their governments? And that's a civics lesson that you know is worth having for a long time. This is really wonderful. I think so much of what we've been hearing um, through the the culture wars uh, is that talking about civics was in some ways a bad thing. It's something that always bothered me about yeah, the culture yeah, yeah. wars. I'm like, yeah. wait a second, when did, if you're a progressive, talking about civics be, mm. become mm. a conservative, you know, a top-down kind of, I mean, we need this fundamentally in this country because oh. talking about civics, I think, is a profoundly radical act sure. in terms of possibilities. Um, and this, Progressives I mean, gave, gave the values debate over to the right for way too yeah, long. I don't know how, I don't know how that happened, yeah. um, but it certainly, they, it, it, it worked. I mean, it, it got shifted. 
So it's actually really exciting. I mean, those of you who know Jim Sleeper and his work, he's been talking mm -hmm. about civic republicanism for the last four, five, six years. Mm -hmm. Uh, and with a steady drumbeat, and I know that he's thrilled with, with this kind of debate actually happening. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty exciting, another reason why we still matter as historians. Oh, yeah. Well, just, just what we saw, I mean, at the polls the other day and across our society, people voting, <laughs> believing in voting. I mean, uh, first-time vo first voters in their 40s and 50s who hadn't yes. bothered to vote before. Uh, I don't know exactly what the final numbers are, but what's 135 million, I think, people voted? I mean, that's extraordinary. I, I saw people weeping at the poll uh, just, just because they were casting their vote. And, uh, um, and I, you know, I too have had moments in my life when you worry, you know, we had to worry whether, whether voting was, was a way to change the society or not. And we've just, We've just experienced a case where, yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> and I think that there are a couple of things that we should sort of pull out of that. One is the idea that I think you mentioned that we have something akin to a movement here, um, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. movement in mm -hmm. getting voters out, a movement in the way the campaign was run, the way the campaign was organized, <coughs> that made people feel involved. But we also have a kind of, um, I've been getting emails from students who say, you're not going to believe this, but I put up an American flag in my apartment um, oh. where it I, I put a little one on the outside of my office, I confess. I never owned a flag. <laughs> Actually, I did during the bicentennial, but that doesn't count. Well, I think people feel like uh, they're not going to give their country over to a group right. of people who can then say who's patriotic and who's not, who's a real American right. and who's not. We're all real Americans, and I think that uh, Colin Powell's eloquent words about so what's wrong exactly. if Barack yeah. Obama yeah. was yeah. a Muslim? Yeah. What about those 10-year-olds? Can't they grow up to be president? I think that was just one of those moments in American history, like have you no shame, Mr. Right. McCarthy, That's right. yes. that we yes. all realized what the United States of America stands for, and we're all proud. Well, I, I, I will remember, I think, Powell's appearance there on Meet the Press in my top three things of this election, I think, in great part because, again, not to just, you know, condemn the Republican Party here, but there you had a lifetime Republican, a military man, who owes so much of the changes in his own career to, to two Bush presidencies and, and the Reagan presidency, sat there and basically said, my party has become parochial, xenophobic, and all but racist, and one of its two people on the ticket is utterly unprepared. He, he basically said, my party is politically bankrupt and it must recreate itself. I thought that was, whatever votes he may have swung one way or the other, I don't know. I thought that was devastating to McCain's campaign. And it couldn't have come from a, a, a more important voice. Now, whether Paul has redeemed himself completely about Iraq remains mm -hmm. to be seen, and that's mm -hmm. not for us to decide. But that kind of internal critique that we saw going on within Republican circles is one of the most telling things about what just happened. Did you want to, Glinda, you wanted to um, talk a few moments, I didn't before our time is out, about um, almost looking <coughs> back historically and also being somewhat a prognosticator about a realignment in this country. Right. You and do the predictions is, here. Right. This is where <laughs> historians make fools of themselves. Uh, you know, the, the past is prologue, but to what? Um, so we had a, a what historians call a political realignment in the New Deal mm -hmm. when the Democratic Party began attracting <laughs> African-American voters who began to vote in the North. Um, 
And the New Deal, what they call the New Deal Coalition, lasted really until probably the Reagan presidency, perhaps Nixon. It's, it's building into a different uh, party realignment that we call the New Right. And what I'm wondering is if we have, if we're looking at, an, yet again, another political realignment. Um, they called the New Deal the fifth party system. They called the New Right the sixth party system. I wonder if we're looking at a seventh party system mm -hmm. where the Democratic Party is different from what it was before, where it's the home of Hispanic voters, for example, mm -hmm. where African-American voters who voted 95% for Obama come out and are um, able to really be a political force because they voted. Urban voters, large cities, 70% voted for Obama. Small cities, 59%. So what you're looking at is a de-regionalization of our country mm -hmm. so that you can have a Virginia and a North Carolina carried by their urban mm -hmm. electorate. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interested in knowing, um, trying not trying to predict the future, but trying to find out how solid you guys think this sort of change might be. Well, it remains to be seen, but again, uh, you're onto something terribly important, and I think the most important voter block here in this election, we've said a lot about young people coming out, uh, although the overall raw numbers apparently aren't that much larger than they were in 04, although they were heavily for Obama, but it's this middle, uh, uh, unaffiliated, perhaps moderate Republican, white American voter who came over and voted for Obama. That, to me, is the most telling thing about this. If there's a new coalition here, it, it clearly has a lot to do with the Hispanic vote because it's such a hugely growing uh, block. And regional bases now in the South and the West, but it's this moderate, unaffiliated, often former Republican voter, after all, they've, they've, they voted twice for Bush, who have come over to the Democratic Party, perhaps because of economic issues, probably first because of the Iraq War, which became so hopelessly unpopular, and who want to live in a country that's defeating racism. I mean, I know plenty of moderate Republicans like this who they really do want to believe they live in a, in a mm -hmm. nation that's defeating racism. Mm -hmm. They want to be part of that. And they probably saw something in Obama that just made them feel good about their vote. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denigrating what they did in any way. Um, I always tell my students, and I, I may have to revise this now, it goes back to Jonathan's opening <laughs> comment, I've always said if you're really waiting for a grand new realignment, unfortunately our past gives us only two big ones. One was caused by a civil war and the other by a Great Depression, so you can wish it would take your pick. <laughs> right. Now we may actually have the Great Depression, I hope no, we don't have a civil war. But there, there, there are other things going on here other than just the economy and our racial divisions and our ethnic divisions. Um, uh, but and, and, and whether we've got a real fundamental realignment remains to be seen. Uh, in part, I think this depends now on how the Republican Party actually redesigns right. itself. Right. What does it become? Who, how does the Republican Party appeal to pluralistic America? That's where they've blown it, to be honest. They really have, and, and it's, if you, I, I really... We've all been doing it, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this as well. We, we were talking general terms about racial blocks, in a sense. Um, while Obama might have pulled 95% of the African-American vote, just because Obama's categorized as a black person was not reason enough mm -hmm. for 95% of African-Americans mm -hmm. to vote for him. 
And once the Republican Party starts to understand that about you know, about the Latino voting bloc, in fact, that it's uh, many different kinds of blocs, yes. and understands the social conservatism of many parts of African America, um, then you then things can become messier in interesting ways. Um, you know, my thoughts about the realignment is, well, let's see about the 2010 elections. Mm-hmm. Let's see what mm-hmm. Obama can pull through on mm-hmm. his coattails mm-hmm. or if it's a repudiation just that quickly, mm-hmm. regardless of what he does. I mean, whether he has success in Iraq or with the economy. And really, let's see what happens. He'll be, of course, running, I presume, uh, running for re-election in 2012. And the way I'm thinking now, not, being, not knowing what's going to transpire in terms of the real politics, the economy, international affairs between now and then, if he wins again, um, mm-hmm. and I guess also if he hasn't had, if, he, if everything hasn't turned around, mm-hmm. and if he wins again, mm-hmm. then <laughs> talk about rewriting um, yeah. history. Then it's just, you know, tear out some of these pages and, <laughs> and let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, we're, we're actually, I think the three of us could talk for a long time <laughs> about these issues. And we will. No um, we, <laughs> and we will, but not on this microphone. Right. Um, so in an old-fashioned way, let me um, personally sign off. This is Jonathan Holloway wishing you a happy afternoon or morning or evening. <laughs> <laughs> and my colleague David Blight and Glenda Gilmore. And um, thank you for letting us onto your internet connection. That was David Blight, Glenda Gilmore, and Jonathan Holloway talking about the historical presidential election of 2008. This was recorded as part of Yale's Election 2008 series of podcasts on November 10, 2008.